This episode has been made possible by the Creatives Garage, the home of awesome. Welcome to another episode of Nipe Story. This is a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and across the continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mochiro. And on today's episode, we welcome Kari Baraka and his story, The Elizabethans We Lost. To say that I loved him is a stretch, but I've never had a relationship as fulfilling as the one I had with H. Two spoiled boys raised in relative luxury, we met in the high-achieving environment that was St. Elizabeth's boys. We immediately stood out from the rest of the boys, and to each other, a force field enveloping us from the shyness and obscurity of Form 1. Our first night in the school, we were assigned to adjacent bunk beds, and we hardly slept, spending the night talking about tennis, he the Federer devotee to my Nadal, H and I sat next to each other in the classroom, naturally, and we immersed ourselves in whatever book we were reading. This is around the time I was obsessed with biblical narratives, so we spent hours talking about these. Simeon and Levi killing all the men in the town of Shechem to avenge their sister's death, Saul, anointed king because of his height and his good looks, David's mighty men, Jehu, the mighty assassin of the Lord. Once, we read a book about Rizpah, the concubine of Saul, whose sons David had murdered, and it was all we could do to prevent ourselves from declaring the Philistines as victims of Israeli aggression. H. had read Fitzgerald before joining St. Elizabeth's, and he introduced me to Scott and Zelda, and to the Jazz Age. We talked about Picasso and Bunuel and Man Ray and Gertrude Stein, and Paris in the 1920s, and philosophized at length about how we would look with Salvador Dali-esque moustaches. In those days, St. Elizabeth's hadn't yet acquired the wanton reputation it carries nowadays. Established by the Mill Hill Fathers, it was one of the oldest schools in the region. Even on our first day there, we sensed the undercurrent of privileged history that St. Elizabeth's carried, that to claim that one was an Elizabethan carried a lot of weight, that this Elizabethan feeling running through us was a chain that would interlink us years after our stays at the hothouse were nigh. The teachers wasted no time in impressing this on us, talking about the Elizabethan old boys who were the who's who in the country. A couple of ministers in the independence government, more ministers in the current government, national sports heroes, a few of the country's moneymen, the deputy chief justice, a few archbishops, and we talked about that, H and I, Ken B, T, and even PJ, who was there on scholarship, and was the brightest chap I would ever meet. In the school folklore, there existed a Father Bransma, a ghostly figure who roamed the grounds in the wee hours of the morning, and was promised to deliver fire and fury to any boy who dared skive morning preps. H scoffed at the story, but that first morning he got up earlier than the rest of us, and was off to class before any of us realised that it was time to get up. H, I can see him now, smaller than the rest of us first formers, resplendent in his grey sweater and grey trousers, his name smartly stitched onto his clothes, his green keyholder trailing out of his pocket. In a school as big as that one, we were more than a thousand boys, it was easy for one to melt into the crowd, but H refused to. Even now, 
the sound of his voice shriller than the rest of ours, is clear in my mind, elucidating why he considered Sheng a language beneath him, chiding me for my willingness to abandon myself, to abandon him, and dive headfirst into Elizabethan culture, into the Sheng, into the sneaking off to the local township on Saturday nights, into the rugby, into the drab Catholicism of it all. Here's the thing, H. We are a special lot, the two of us. We might see things the others will never be able to. Don't lose yourself. But I did. I lost myself to the crowd sometime in our second term there, and as the rest of us niajed and gotad and addressed each other as mzi and umtuyangu, H remained steadfast in his how are you's and handshakes and bro and dude, creating a chasm between himself and the rest of the boys, a chasm that grew wider the longer we were in that school. Was this difference to blame for H exiting the school earlier than the rest of us could have foreseen? Perhaps, but I am able to ask myself this question only in retrospect. At the time, none of us could see that this would prove a problem, or maybe we could, but we refused to, blinded as we were by the struggle of trying to establish ourselves as Elizabethans, and by the sight of the teacher's daughters, creatures who, as far from being beautiful nymphettes as they were, we couldn't help but leer at. Supreme among those pseudo-nymphettes was Mr. E's daughter. We never learned her name, but we took to calling her Paris, partly because she looked to us to embody the idea of Paris, the city as it had been concocted in our heads, and partly because she wore a plethora of Paris-themed T-shirts. J'aime Paris, Midnight in Paris, Paris in the Summer, and our favourite, an old Paris Saint-Germain jersey, with an Okocha inked at the back. We worshipped Paris, we all did. There were other girls, of course, Mrs. W's twin daughters, the school matron's daughter, the brood in Mr. A's household, whose faces were undecipherable from each other. The rest of them, the ones we never talked about, the nameless, faceless ones. All of those girls, Paris included, were older and ergo unattainable to us. But in the fantasies we wove, that wasn't a problem. Mrs. W's twins were assigned to PJ and I, the school matron's daughter was Ken B's, while T got the glob that was Mr. A's girls. We tried to interest H in our divisions of the girls. But he was never interested, rather snooty and distant in his reactions to our enticements. He hardly talked to anybody in class, but sometimes... In the middle of our pack of horny 14-year-olds casting lots about our wives, he would peer at me directly and ask me for my opinion on Nadal's backspin or Del Potro's serve or Davidenko's hair, as if by reminding me of our shared interest in tennis, the snootiest of snooty sports, he would rescue me from the uncultured morass I had trapped myself in. It was at St. Elizabeth's that I started masturbating. Every day... In the evening, we would retreat under our covers and pleasure ourselves with the images of our favourite girls. Even now, as I sit at my desk writing this, I feel a tingle in my spine and a warmth in my groin from thinking of Paris. She is my enduring image of St. Elizabeth's. Paris, she, casting aside her Midnight in Paris t-shirt and coiling herself around my body. Paris in my bed, the upper bunk shaking, and the fourth former in the lower bed, 
my passenger shouting out, Pilot, Unadu? Knowing full well what I was doing and causing me to take a trip to the ablution block where I would continue my fantasies. And when I was done, I would wipe my hands on the wall and step out. Just by the door, there was always another boy waiting his turn. A boy with whom I would exchange a look of guilty pleasure. The mutual knowledge of what I had been doing and what he was about to do binding us. As we got older, some of the other boys stopped dawdling with Paris and transitioned to images of the sisters, who attended Mass with us every Sunday. I don't think H jerked off like the rest of us. He seemed too put together for such predilections. Or maybe, because I knew him for such a short period of time, I wont to build him up as a figure of perfection in my head. H, shorter than the rest of us, five foot six, a face that hinted at a distant, cute chubbiness, and a scar by the side of his right eye. Whether or not he immersed himself in the pleasures of the waboom is immaterial. What is important is that he was infatuated with one of the sisters. Sister Frances was plain and flat-chested, large owl-like spectacles the only feature of note on her face. What H saw in her was a mystery to us, and even though we speculated at depth about it, we could never understand it. Sister Frances was a stickler for the rules, walking around the chapel, making sure we were reciting the prayers and singing the hymns, and waking up the boys who were asleep with a pinch to their cheek and a sharp remark. With time, we all perfected our sleeping techniques and were seldom caught by Sister Frances, but H never bothered to hide that he was sleeping. Naturally, we avoided sitting next to him during Mass, but who can forget the image of H, for the one year he was an Elizabethan, being shoved awake by the sister, his cheeks being pinched sore, and his look of pleasure through it all. We teased H about it, the fact that there were two events whose occurrence we could depend on during every service. Father Masera, giving us an anecdote about the time he was a student in Jerusalem, and H being pinched awake at least thrice. Unlike the rest of us, H never skived Mass. He attended them all, the main Mass with the entire school every Sunday, the special Form 1 Mass every Thursday, the 30-minute quickie on Friday, even the optional Mass every Saturday morning, a Mass the rest of us never bothered with. The first time we remember H missing the service was after what happened with Edward Conklin happened. Edward Conklin was not really called Edward Conklin. I am unable to remember his real name, but we called him Edward Conklin because of his stuffy, pompous manner and all the airs he put out. H and Edward Conklin hit it off immediately in a way none of us could have foreseen. One moment, H was seated by himself at his desk, lonesome and immersed in his Dan Brown. The next, splitting hairs about whether Serena Williams would ever prove a better player than Justine Enanardin with Edward Conklin. I resented Edward for his effacing me from H's universe and was not shy in planning elaborate pranks to discredit him. I even planted a seedy rumour about Edward Conklin's sexuality, hinting darkly at past misdeeds that had led to an expulsion from an even snootier establishment than St. Elizabeth's boys. Whether H ever traced this rumour to me is doubtful, but he sensed the bitter bile of envy I felt towards Edward Conklin. 
How else do I explain his insistence on including me in his conversations about tennis and Dan Brown's cultish propaganda, subjects in which Edward Conklin was far more proficient than I was? There is an old joke that studying in a Catholic school gave James Joyce all the material he needed to be a writer. The veracity of this I cannot ascertain, but we did have more than our fair share of incidents at St. Elizabeth's. Sneaking off to the local village to buy pork and hightail with the girls at the local polytechnic was a favourite activity. We often set off on these adventures together, but there were those bolder than others within our motley crew. T and PJ reigned supreme, regaling us with tales from the village, leaving us snorting with laughter, telling us how, after a bad case of pork, they had to sneak into a villager's shamba to relieve themselves, the owner of the shamba discovering them in the process of wiping their buttocks with leaves from his maize stalks, and the chase that ensued. How the two of them, having danced the night off with a glitter of polytechnic girls, had themselves assailed by a gang of men who accused them of stealing their women. How, when they had bumped into Mr. E in club signature, they had insisted that they weren't his students, that watuhu fanana, and spent the night drinking with him. We make sure to meet at least once a year to reminisce over Tasca and Yamachoma. T and PJ and I, Brio, Onyepapa, even Leo, who was never one of us, but who insisted on coming along with us on our adventures so many times, he faded to become an acceptable part of our decor. Conspicuous by their absences are Ken B, who we hadn't bothered to keep track of after he was found fucking a Form 1 and expelled from St. Elizabeth's, and H, from whom none of us had heard nothing after the incident with Edward Conklin. Now, the thing with Edward Conklin we were only able to piece together by collecting the bits of information Ken B, Mr. E and Edward Conklin fed us. What happened is that we went for our usual Monday mass and when we got back, H was gone and Edward Conklin had been suspended by the school board. The chapel at St. Elizabeth's was a tiny one, commissioned by Father Bransmer with 300 students in mind. So it was only used by specific classes on their specific prayer days. Ours was Monday, and that Monday we trooped into the chapel, suffering in the morning cold in our shorts and thin socks. It is possible that H was not at the service I'm thinking about. How were we to know whether or not he was there that morning, trying as we were to sleep in the pews without attracting the attention of Sister Francis and Father Macera? All we knew was that when we came back from Mass, H was gone, and Edward Conklin would end up leaving the school, at the end of the term. But this is the story we got from Ken B. He was waiting outside the deputy's office to receive punishment for whatever misdeed he had been discovered in at that moment, when the deputy stormed into the office, dragging H and Edward Conklin up the stairs. Apparently, H had taken a break from his ludlums and Dan Brown's and started reading St. Augustine's Confessions. We swore when we heard this because... Ignorant though we were of who St. Augustine was, or why he had been sainted, or why he felt the need to confess to his prosecutors, hearing Ken B. say it the way he did left no doubt in our minds about the dangers of St. Augustine. We rushed to the library and discovered that, when St. Augustine was sixteen, he and his father visited the public baths in the ancient city of Thagast, and here, upon spotting the involuntary erection his son had, 
Augustine's father expressed his pride at his son's burgeoning sexual maturity. That incident marked the end of their relationship. Years later, his father long dead and his mother his closest confidant, Augustine decided to leave the country. A few days before he departed for Africa, standing by a window overlooking an enclosed garden, the two of them concluded that there was no bodily pleasure that could ever match the happiness of the saints. That was the ideological background to what H. and Edward Conklin had been found doing. We smiled ruefully at this. Classic H. Everything he did needed to have an ideological background to it. Once or twice, we had asked him who he would be rooting for in the Chelsea versus Arsenal game, and after receiving a lecture from him about the perestroika, Russian oligarchy, and some Boris guy, we had decided that H didn't really care for football, and we should stop bothering him with our questions. Anyway, having read St. Augustine, H decided that he, St. Augustine, was wrong, that there was a bodily pleasure that could match the happiness of the saints. The wise have written about how, at the height of sexual pleasure, a person is able to communicate with God, to see the face of God. To love is to see the face of God, others have said, and so we make love because we seek to see the face of God. These are not things we thought of by ourselves, but things Edward Conklin told us himself when we met him years after St. Elizabeth's. We were all lawyers and doctors and engineers, and a writer here and a professor there, men of Nyadi, men who had made something of themselves, men who, in becoming the beating hearts of their communities, espoused the spirit of what it meant to be an Elizabethan. H had made the decision that he had to see the face of God. Men were the superior creatures, made in the image and likeness of God and not from a rib, and so it was only men who could form the church that could see God. When the deputy stumbled upon H and Edward Conklin in flagrante delicto in H's dormitory bunk, that was it for them. Edward Conklin had pleaded being hoodwinked, hinted at spells where his memory was blank, but H, he had explained the ideological background to what he was doing, explained it so well that it was clear he was the ringleader, the brains behind the operation. I still think of H sometimes. Last week I was on my way to meet the boys when, walking from the parking lot, I was accosted by a man in a white shirt and a black pair of trousers. Have you committed your life to God, to being the face of God on earth? He asked, handing me a thick pamphlet. I've been thinking about that man since, struck at the particular phrase he used to refer to being saved. Was that H? I ask myself this as I clutch my beads in my hands, saying the rosary and immersed in the rose smell wafting through my prayer room. One can't really know these things, but had you asked me, years ago, on our first day at St. Elizabeth's, who among our circle of boys would end up handing out pamphlets in parking lots and speaking about the face of God. H would have been the last name in my mind. The Elizabethans we lost was read to you by A. Mora Gogi and written by Carrie Baraka. Carrie is a writer from Kisumu and he sings for a secret choir 
in Nairobi. This episode was recorded at the Creatives Garage Studios. Creatives Garage is a multidisciplinary collective space for creatives to network, share ideas, collaborate, learn, gain market accessibility, and push boundaries. My apologies for not being able to upload an episode last week. There were a few technical and logistical issues that the podcast ran into. But we're back as promised, and I hope you and yours are keeping well and safe. Nipe Story is available to download wherever you get your podcast from. You can follow Nipe Story on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at Nipe underscore story and our email address is producer at fingerpiano.co.ke if you'd like to submit your short story for consideration. Thank you for listening and be safe. Nipe Story is a Finger Piano production. <laughs>